You're listening to Counter Moves, a Christian review of ideas shaping church and culture. On Counter Moves, we interview some of today's most incisive thinkers on the ideas and trends affecting Christian witness in a secular age. Our mission is summed up in the words of Carl F.H. Henry. If the church fails to apply the central truth of Christianity to social problems correctly, someone else will do so incorrectly. Welcome to the latest episode of Counter Moves. And on today's episode, I want to discuss a range of topics with someone that I think everyone should be reading and following right now, and that's Alexandra DeSanctis from National Review Magazine, my favorite magazine, if I can just be honest up front right now. She's a young conservative working, uh, I think, at the forefront of politics, of punditry, at the public square, and she's really emerged as a young voice, I think, who's wise beyond her years, who has been uh, writing uh, at National Review. And so on today's episode, we're going to be talking about a range of issues from uh, her Catholicism to issues of human dignity and kind of the state of conservatism and issues in the, the public square more broadly. And all of these are topics that have been in the news recently following whether it's the recent scandals in the Catholic Church or issues around the Supreme Court confirmation with Justice Kavanaugh. Um, But today we're going to be unpacking a whole host of issues that I think uh, we uh, as Christians would be concerned about and and wanting to know uh, how to think about. Alexandra DeSanctis is a staff writer for National Review and is the co-host with my good friend David French of the Ordered Liberty podcast, and she was previously a William F. Buckley Fellow in Political Journalism with National Review and is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame, and she is a current resident of New York City. So first off, Alexandra, thanks for uh, joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So my first question is, uh, as I just noted, you host a podcast with the dirty, rotten scoundrel David French, the Ordered Liberty (laughs) podcast. And so my first question is, can you tell me a little bit of how awful David is and what's it like to to run a podcast with him? Well, I will say yesterday uh, when we were recording, David called me Alexandria, which is this <laughs> kind of this misnomer that's just been floating around Twitter. And I, I always get mail addressed to Alexandria. So it's sort of become this running joke. And then yesterday, David decided to just go ahead and call me it. So there are little hiccups like that from time to time. I will also say um, David's pop culture views are truly reprehensible most of the time. That is accurate. I don't really agree on sports um, either. We, but yeah, you know you're you're exactly right on the uh, the pop culture stuff. Like his whole insistence on like Battlestar Galactica being like the peak of entertainment. I mean, how can someone <laughs> so right about ninety nine percent of things be so wrong about that? Uh, but right. anyway, that's so, the thing. He uh, on political issues, on religious issues, we see eye to eye on so much. But those other those other things, we just try not to discuss if we can help it. <laughs> that's right. No, I, t- I totally understand that. You work at National Review, and National Review was absolutely pivotal to me, uh, starting around 2008, as I was kind of coming into my own conservatism. And so I began reading a lot of biographies about William F. Buckley Jr., and I've actually had a whole podcast dedicated just to him previously, and uh, I'm just a William F. Buckley fanboy. And so I was just kind of curious, uh, how does William F. Buckley's legacy 
live on at National Review today? I mean, I know it does, obviously, but just kind of how you being steeped in that office culture. I mean, how do you see William F. Buckley's legacy alive today? It's very, very present here. And I, so I live in New York City right now. Uh, I've lived here for the last two years because this is where our headquarters is. Um, and people always think that National Review is in DC because, you know, right. obviously we cover politics. And when you say, oh, we're actually in New York, there's the inevitable, oh, why are you there? You're covering the Hill or whatever. And I say, you know, Buckley was from there. And so we're still here. So yeah. that's very clearly one very obvious reason or one way that his legacy um, lives on. But more substantially, we have the National Review Institute, which is our nonprofit wing, and mm-hmm. they do a lot of event planning and a lot of um, just kind of substantive types of events and, and tours around the country and things like this to talk about Buckley, to talk about what he believed. And, um, you know, last year, for example, last fall um, on the anniversary of his death, we had events all around the country where different National Review current contributors, people on our masthead, um, other conservatives talked about what Buckley believed and sort of how that could enlighten what's going on in the conservative movement today, how that relates to what's happening to the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's tough because we don't want to do too much tea leaf reading or trying to, you know, kind of scan Buckley's writing for how, what he might think about Donald Trump, for instance. Um, but it is helpful as an institution like National Review. We're obviously very publicly identified with Buckley and we're mm-hmm. proud of that. And so I think there's we can we can get a lot from um, you know looking to him and what what he said when he was alive and trying in some way to apply it to what's going on now. And I, I think one of the most instructive things where where Buckley's legacy is most important right now is, you know, starting in the '50s, he kind of put those guardrails in about what's going to be actually conservative. And I think there's so much, uh, frankly, garbage floating around on the margins of conservatism and why National Review is so important in my own view and I think in the broader kind of political ecology is the fact that you guys still are looked to as being serious, sober-minded, level-headed, reasonable conservatism that has not lost its legacy or its vision, but you're also willing to play hardball with voices that you think undermine conservatism. Is that fair to say? Yeah, very much so. And that's a huge part of why I'm glad to be here. And it's funny because I started, I graduated um, two years ago and I started here right after that. My first job right out of college and maybe three weeks after I moved to New York City to start this job, Donald Trump, um, you know, officially got the nomination Mm -hmm. to be the Republican nominee for president. So I, that was not at all what I envisioned when I hoped to go into political journalism. I saw, you know, a Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz presidency, just kind of politics as normal. And it ended up being a two-year kind of thrill ride circus. So (laughs) not at all what I signed up for, but I was very glad to be at a place that I think, um, you know, doesn't compromise principle, cares about conservatism, you know, and what that means as a vision rather than a political platform or political party. Uh, And I I also have had a lot of freedom to, um, to write what I believe to be true about conservatism, even when that might stray from my editorial line. No, oh, that's awesome. So you mentioned that you live in New York City, and I want to say I've heard on your podcast that you live in Brooklyn. Is that correct? I do, yeah. Okay. I, would, I would say sadly, but it's better than Manhattan, I think. <laughs> okay, so that was one of my questions is Brooklyn has this reputation in the culture of being the most like zaniest liberal culture in America. So I just would be interested to hear your insights on what's it like to live in like the uber hipster the hipsterdom of Brooklyn as uh, as a conservative Christian like yourself. 
Yeah, that's that's a funny question. I mean, I'm glad I live in Brooklyn, first of all, because it feels a lot less like a city than Manhattan. I think I would lose my mind if I had to work in Midtown and then, you know, go home to the Upper West Side or whatever, sure. which is beautiful. But I just need to be, you know, feel like I'm not in a huge city um, when I'm at home. So it's nice. And I the thing is, Brooklyn is obviously has that reputation of being kind of hipster land and liberal land. And that's well deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not really all of Brooklyn. So where I live is a it's by the biggest park in Brooklyn, and it's much more – it hasn't really been infiltrated by those hipster forces as much. It's much more, you know, people who've been living there forever, families that have been living there, you know, for generations, yeah. immigrants um, who – Brooklyn is their home in a way that it's not the, you know, Williams, Williamsburg hipster's home. Um, so I'll go to those places in Brooklyn. I feel very out of place there. I don't like it very much with, you know, the rainbow bagels and the black smoothies or whatever else they're eating and drinking these days. And it's kind of fun to see, but that's not really – when I say I live in Brooklyn, it's a little bit different kind of area, part of Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, and and, and the, uh, the the servers who have, like, their preferred pronoun on their name badge, I've heard that's a right, thing. Right, exactly. And yeah, I avoid that kind of stuff like the plague. <laughs> So uh, I want to transition a little bit talking about controversies concerning the Catholic Church right now. And obviously, I'm a Protestant, I'm an evangelical, but I find myself uh, with sincerely devout Catholic friends and someone who in their professional life has worked with Catholics for a long time now and has great respect for Catholicism and finds Catholics to be tremendous allies on uh, in defense of the permanent things. Let's just call it that. And so I also feel like Protestants and evangelicals have a vested interest in what happens with the the broader witness that the Catholic Church has about issues of human dignity, sanctity of marriage, sanctity of life. And so we really do uh, have a debt of gratitude to pay to the Catholic Church for uh, their kind of consensus witness on those issues in the culture that we're allied around. So obviously uh, there's a lot of tumult and controversy right now happening with sex abuse scandals, allegations that there have been cover-ups at the highest level of the Catholic Church, including Pope Francis. Can you just give listeners kind of an inside account of, of how you see things playing out within Catholicism right now? I know it's a very open-ended, broad question, but how serious are these controversies? And, you know, with this Archbishop Vagano's letter and then, then then calls for Pope Francis's resignation. I mean, do you do you actually see something like this on the horizon? Give us a sense of of, of the current state. Sure. So, I mean, I think it's tough to actually um, envision Pope Francis resigning just because, you know, the Catholic Church obviously is not a democracy. It's not even a political organization in any sense. So there's not really any kind of um, mechanism by which if there were somehow enough Catholics outraged, they could force the pope to step down. Or even if enough cardinals, for instance, in the hierarchy were outraged, they could force the pope to step down. That's just not really um, in the cards. So if he doesn't think that he needs to resign— um, then he's not going to. And, and there's really not any precedent for this. I know you know mm-hmm. we're all familiar now with the fact that Pope Benedict resigned, but that was the first time that that had happened in thousands of years. And right. in my understanding, only the second time in the history of the church that that had happened. So this isn't really something that happens in the Catholic Church. And, and so while I'm definitely very concerned about the allegations that we've read about, about you know, the possibility of these cover-ups. Um, I think a lot of Catholics are, regardless of their, you know, other political views or their views of um, what church doctrine should be on any given issue. Uh, I don't think that many people would be comfortable with the Pope resigning or would see that as just kind of like an easy solution uh, mm-hmm. to what's going on. And I think what I've heard and what I've read um, 
in the last few weeks as Catholics have responded to all this kind of outpouring of various types of scandal has just been we want the truth. Um, And I would much rather have, you know, Pope Francis come out and say, you know, maybe the allegations aren't true. Maybe he didn't know about Mm -hmm. former Cardinal McCarrick's uh, sexual misconduct. Maybe he didn't. And that that even better if he didn't. Right. But he should he should come out and say so. And every person who is named in Archbishop Vigano's allegations should come out and say which part of it is true, which part of it wasn't. Um, And I think that's something that Catholics deserve to know. And at this point, I certainly can't predict whether or not that's going to happen Mm -hmm. because the response has been scattershot and, um, you know, a mess. And the Pope himself has refused to answer and said that silence is the best strategy right right now um, for some unknown reason. So I I don't know if we're actually going to get that. And I don't think there's any way to try and get that. You know, I, I signed on to a letter with, I think now, you know, in the tens of thousands of Catholic women have signed on to uh, asking the Pope to answer this list of very straightforward questions. So right. Catholics are, are trying very hard to make this happen, but it, it's tough to say um, how exactly it'll pan out. So uh, one of the things I, I noticed happening on Twitter in the aftermath of of the letter that came out was uh, a lot of frustration registered from conservative Catholics towards how the media was handling the situation. Can you explain kind of what was that sentiment? How How do conservative Catholics think that kind of mainstream media outlets handled the news about Archbishop Vigano's letter? Oh, it was an absolute mess. I'm really glad that you asked about this. Um, the New York Times is the most prominent example that comes to mind mm-hmm. because just after um, the allegations came out, their Vatican reporter had this long piece that detailed Archbishop Vigano's um, you know, history of conflict with the Pope, talked about how he was traditional-minded and essentially you know, tried to cast him as a homophobe mm-hmm. and tried to say that you know, all the people upset about this essentially are you know, conservative Catholics who don't like gay people, right. who don't want there to be gay priests, who don't want gay marriage. You know, the Pope, Pope Francis is this kind of reformer. Mm-hmm. He's opening the church. He has, you know, wide open, loving arms, embracing everybody. And these kind of angry, stuck in the past, entrenched conservatives like this archbishop are now, you know, wielding sex abuse as a weapon to, um, you know, try and take down a papacy that they don't like. And this was a refrain that I saw both in reporting and in the commentary that several mainstream outlets covered. And, you know, I don't mean to say the whole mainstream media was this way. You know, there's some good religion reporters here and there. Mm -hmm. But I think for the most part, the mainstream media is just full of people who at best don't really understand Catholicism Mm -hmm. or Christianity for that matter, but especially Catholicism. And they often either don't try to, or when they do, they don't get the full story. And so we ended up for the most part with this very shallow coverage that looked exactly like what I said, you know, conservatives are mad at the Pope Mm -hmm. and are now trying to take him down with the allegation that he covered up sex abuse. And that's just not, that was not the right angle. Any good reporter worth his salt, any good commentator should be asking, is any part of this letter true, right? Mm -hmm. And if it's not, then let's go ask everybody. And if it's not, they can tell us so. Pope Francis himself, he has a mouth. He can defend himself if it's not true, right? The angle here is not uh, that anti-gay conservative Catholics are mad at the Pope. The angle is, is this terrible thing true? You know, look at the Pennsylvania report. Where else did things like this happen? Who knew about it? And what did they do? That's what every Catholic wanted to know. Mm -hmm. And instead, we're getting these, you know, discursions from non-Catholic reporters about how we hate gay people. (laughs) Sure, sure. It was absurd. Absurd. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of your background and kind of how you came to the convictions that you um, have arrived at. But in the context of, you know, in the media's mind, the culture's mind, everyone younger than 30 is just a liberal. Um, But you're not. You're a conservative. You're at a conservative publication. So what in your 
background kind of formed you to kind of stand athwart, so to speak, the general attitude of our of our culture's view on on young people? Well, I think it's going to sound like a kind of lame answer because it truly was just my my family um, first and foremost, mm-hmm. and then the fact that it was important to my parents that I get a Catholic education. Yeah. Um, so my parents are both very conservative, and not only that, but very politically. Um, maybe involved is not right, but they pay a lot of attention to politics. They, we talked, I grew up talking about politics and not in a sort of, you know, Republicans are always right sense, but in a, here's what we believe. Here's why, you know, we vote Republican because they tend to be pro-life. That's the most important thing. Right. Um, but, you know, also, you know, down the line, we just talked about issues in my home a lot growing up and I was homeschooled for several years um, and then went to Catholic middle school, Catholic high school, and then Notre Dame. So, I just kind of always had the benefit of an education where, um, you know, I was learning the truth and it wasn't, you know, my parents saying you're always going to be a Republican because we Hmm. vote Republican. It was a here are the principles and and why we think they're true. And so I was always able to think them through and kind of come to believe them myself as I got older. So it really was a matter of where I was and I guess fate. Um, So I'm I'm very blessed that that's the case. No, I I, uh, I'm actually really encouraged to hear that. And um, I I know you said you think of of it as a lame answer, but in in many ways, it's uh, the most, in my view, biblical way that children are supposed to be to be brought up in accordance with their parents' values. I mean, I honestly, I don't hear stories quite like that where uh, there are. I don't. I don't know if a, if a success story is quite the right way of saying it, but where a child was brought up deliberately and intentionally with the values of their parents. Uh, but obviously, you're in your twenties, functioning on your own thoughts. So, what about conservatism? makes sense to you? If that, if that makes sense as a question, like why are you a conservative? Obviously, you you grew up that way. You learned kind of the values of conservatism, but what is it that convinces you about the, the, the principles of conservatism? I think the most fundamental thing is just um, I think conservatism aligns best with my view of the human person. Yes. And so, you know, obviously the American system, I, I think, is the best form of government that's been devised to actually take into account what we know to be true about human nature. Uh, and I think within that system, conservatism best respects the things that we know to be true. You know, mm-hmm. It encourages virtue. It encourages um, a government that exists to protect uh, fundamental rights. It exists you know, to protect family. And I think all of these things are best articulated by a conservative vision, um, you know, limited. It's hard to have actual freedom, and, and you need freedom to flourish uh, if you have a huge government, for example. Um, and so, obviously, there's a, a role for government, but um, I think the bigger it gets, the the less freedom you have, and the harder it is to actually be flourishing. So, I think it stems mostly from, again, from my Catholicism, and mm-hmm. I think conservatism kind of provides the space where one can have, you know, either a Catholic or a Christian or some kind of teleology where we're working towards an end of human flourishing. That's right. uh, Which sounds, again, very nerdy, but... (laughs) No, no, no. As an ethicist, I mean, you're you're speaking teleology. That's that's my love language right there. So that's great. So uh, along those same lines, um, you mentioned it it accords with your view of of human nature and and humanity. Uh, And I also know that you're fervently pro-life. That's one of the things you're most, uh, I think, vocal on. Can you just talk about why you're so passionate about the life issue? I mean, I think I probably know, given prior comments you've made, but uh, why is the pro-life issue worth focusing on and placing so much of your time, especially when, you know, again, the cultural consensus is that if you're a young woman, you're for so-called reproductive justice. So why are you going all in on the life issue? You know, to me, I— I think about it in very simple terms. If we actually believe that um, 
the unborn child or the fetus is a, a living human person, a distinct human person. Uh, and we believe in the fundamental right to life and the sanctity of life, which I do, and human dignity, um, then I can't imagine what political issue, what policy issue, what debate could be more important than ensuring that those individuals are not being killed, whatever that, you know, call them persons, call them fetuses, call them what you want. If it's a distinct human being, uh, it has a right to life. And that right is the most important reason why society, why government exists. You know, obviously, I care about a lot of other political issues and I write about other things, uh, but I just don't... um, I don't really see how any of those could have much value if at the same time we live in a society where a huge number of people think it's okay to take the life of an unborn child mm-hmm. and where our government, in fact, sanctions and protects that right um, almost unlimitedly. I just don't think much else can be taken very seriously. Do you uh, – I mean statistically speaking, we always hear that it's actually the younger generation that is increasingly more pro-life. Do you buy that narrative or do you still think things are incredibly stacked against the pro-life movement as a whole? You know, I think it's that's actually tough. And I I do kind of argue that myself sometimes because polling does show that young people um, tend to at least favor abortion restrictions later in pregnancy uh, more than their older counterparts. And I think a huge part of that is just because of, you know, ultrasound technology, for example, or science. And the fact that because of, you know, modern medicine, babies are able to survive much earlier if they're born early. Uh, they now can survive. And um, so I think young people kind of have grown up seeing this stuff and it's more in the air. And so people will kind of look at a, you know, five month gestated fetus and say, OK, yeah, that's a that's a kid. We should protect, protect that. And that shows up in the polling. So I think that's encouraging. Um, but at the same time, I think that has to be coupled with kids actually learning or young people um, learning about why we should care that this is a distinct human mm-hmm. being. So you can say and I do say frequently, OK, yeah, this is a, you know, has completely unique human DNA, uh, fits all the characteristics of a living being, um, just using pure science. But then if you can't say why that means this being, whatever it is, has a right to life, that kind of ethical component, then um, you're still going to lose people, I think. And so that's where the latter half or the other part of the young people drop off. I, I know personally, uh, I have three three daughters, uh, seven, three, and, and a five-week-old. And one of the things that makes you the most pro-life is to actually hold a newborn, your newborn child in your arms. And I've been coming home from work every night and just taking as much time as I possibly can to do nothing and sit, sit and hold my newborn. And you look at, you look at your child's face and you realize life is a miracle. And there's nothing that makes you more adamant for the righteousness of the pro-life cause than sitting and holding a newborn. That's not really a question as much as it is an observation because I've been riding that that new father high the past month. And it just <laughs> reminds me of, I mean, how ghastly and, and grisly the abortion regime is in America when you're holding a tiny, vulnerable, precious, uh, small child. So yeah, that's a great point. I, I'm going to transition a little bit um, talking about conservatism. Uh, and when we talk about conservatism right now, you can't talk about it without mentioning uh, Donald Trump, the president of the United States. Uh, and right now, there's all the talk about what is conservatism? Is conservatism still writing its own kind of story independently of Trump? Or has Trump kind of – has he taken on the mantle of conservatism and is he changing conservatism? So I would love to get your thoughts on where you see conservatism right now. To what extent has Donald Trump impacted it for good or for ill, uh, and and where does that leave us in the future? 
That is such a big question. Right. Oh my I goodness. Know. Yeah. <laughs> That's like what I think about every single day and try to write about. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the simplest way of looking at it is, in my view, I don't think Donald Trump really believes too much of anything. There are a couple, you know, sort of policies that he's been consistent on over the last couple of years. But for the most part, he kind of shifts with the um, the winds of public opinion and with whoever he happens to be talking to at the moment. Um, so I think it's kind of a, um, it doesn't really make sense to look at conservatism as something that Donald Trump's going to influence. But he obviously has influenced mm-hmm. and is going to influence the conservative movement and conservative policy goals. And to some extent, I think we can celebrate a lot of what's happened right. in this this presidency. Um, for example, on the pro-life issue, I, I wrote a piece uh, earlier this year interviewing you know more than 20 leaders in the pro-life movement who were very skeptical of Trump during the primary and sort of came around after he became the nominee, essentially, because he wasn't Hillary Clinton. And then you know, basically forced him to be pro-life. You know, they required him to sign this letter saying that he was going to fulfill all these promises to the pro-life community. They Mm -hmm. essentially, you know, they were a big part of people didn't trust him to actually appoint constitutionalist originalist justices. And the pro-life movement was a big part of, you know, kind of pushing him into making the promise of that that list as well. So I think on that issue, we've seen some successes and, and that's a victory. So to the extent that the conservative movement is kind of embodied by the policy um, accomplishments of a presidency, then sure, there have been some successes. But I think on the whole, having someone as the figurehead of a movement who doesn't really have any consistent ideology and surely not a conservative ideology does, it has to weaken the movement and it allows for a lot of um, non-conservative ideas to be identified as conservative and for people who hate conservatives to point to Trump and say, look at this ridiculous thing that he says he believes. How come conservatives are so crazy? Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other element that I would really prefer not to have to deal with. And yet we do. (laughs) Sure. Talking about conservatism, that ultimately has to lead to conversations about journalism, about media. And very recently, I was speaking at a conference, and during one of the breaks, I had uh, a a lady probably in her 50s, early 60s come up to me and adamantly declared that she didn't believe anything the news media was saying. And the way I was interpreting her, she was saying neither left nor right, mainstream – no one can be believed because the media is being filtered through their their uh, presuppositions and, and their pre-existing commitments. And it was actually really, really unsettling to me. And I'm going to write on this at some point because it struck me that so often we hear the, the language of fake news thrown about, and that's now become something to laugh at and, and joke about in, in pop culture. But this conversation for the first time showed me that there are people in the United States who fundamentally do not trust journalists, whether left or right. And so to me, there's a post-truth society emerging, and the overriding kind of ethos of this woman was was frankly just paranoia because she didn't think she could, could believe anything that was coming out of anyone's mouth. And so I just wanted to ask you, can you talk a little bit about people's growing distrust of institutions and the media? And and what are you as journalists trying to do to, uh, I guess, withstand those types of accusations and caricatures? Well, I'm in a little bit of a um, unique position on this question just because at National Review, we do a lot of commentary and um, I do a lot of both. So I, I'm covering um, some of the Senate elections this year, which is more straightforward kind of on the ground reporting. But even that will blend into analysis, which can then blend into you know more commentary on who should win and why, what's good for America. 
Um, so it is a little bit different at National Review. And I think it's fair for us to do commentary and to come across as, you know, what some might say is biased. Right. Uh, that's just sort of what we do. Um, but I certainly have observed a lot of this. And, and I think it's really troubling. And it's come about the last couple of years more so, I think, because of um, the way that President Trump has kind of taken to using this fake news label to mm-hmm. castigate any news um, that he doesn't like. But you know, half the time or some proportion of the time, he's not wrong. He's being, he's maligned constantly by these outlets or suddenly we have CNN chirons, you know, putting in parentheses, this is not actually true after things that people on the right say, which is, I mean, it's just kind of unheard of. And so I don't blame people for distrusting the media, whether that be National Review or Think Progress or CNN, Mm. you know, or the New York Times. There's a lot of really, really bad coverage out there. And that's what's so frustrating about kind of this sanctimony that I often see from the mainstream media and from particular reporters saying, you know, I can't believe President Trump is causing people to hate the press. Okay, well, sure, he there's a lot of irresponsible rhetoric calling the press the enemy of the people, yes. But at the same time, if you covered things fairly, he wouldn't have anything mm-hmm. to point at, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they just don't. And whether it's him or other people on the right or whatever, they just, the coverage is so often very, very biased. And so I think... Um, for me, even at National Review, where we do commentary, the best way to combat this is to not make assertions that you aren't going to back up with fact. So even mm-hmm. if I'm writing a piece that's more opinion-based or it's, is analysis, I want the person reading it to be able to look at it and understand why I got to the conclusion that I did. Because the point of, of commentary writing, for example, is to you know convince people or at least make them think a little more seriously about whatever it is you believe to be true. And if you're just kind of wildly asserting things, you're not going to accomplish that. And the same is obviously doubly true of reporting. If you're telling people something and they write off everything that you say because you're obviously slanted against the president, for example, mm-hmm. then they have, you know, they have a reason to distrust you. So I guess what I'm saying is the deck is stacked against the media right now um, yeah. because of the climate and because of the president's rhetoric. But there are ways to be a responsible journalist um, in spite of that. I have just a couple more questions for you, and then we'll wrap up our time together. One of the things I wanted to discuss was the confirmation hearings of Judge Kavanaugh for his appointment to the Supreme Court. And we saw a lot of antics, particularly related to abortion protests. Um, Can you just kind of give us a synopsis and some commentary on on how you think the culture and the media is handling uh, the notion – I just saw today the New York Times published an op-ed called The Handmaid's Court by Michelle Goldberg. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about the confirmation hearing and the issue of abortion? Oh, my gosh. The displays that we saw during the hearing were just ludicrous. There were actually people, women, dressed up um, in the Senate in these Handmaid's Tale outfits, you know, protesting Kavanaugh. And I think um, it's just from start to finish, from the minute we heard the name of Brett Kavanaugh as the nominee – just the antics began and did not stop. So, and I think a a big part of it is because um, we saw this from Democratic senators as well. Mm -hmm. And it's something that's pervading uh, the left, even at the highest level. So, you know, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Dianne Feinstein, all asking Kavanaugh questions about Roe. Does he, you know, what does he think about abortion? What does he think about abortion rights? Questions the guy's obviously not going to answer and shouldn't be expected to answer um, because it's about his judicial philosophy and not about his political positions on abortion. Uh, But people are obviously very worked up about this because they're concerned that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. And so um, for the past couple of months, uh, groups like NARAL, Planned Mm -hmm. Parenthood, the Center for Reproductive Rights have been waging these all out marketing, fundraising campaigns, trying to, um, you know, gin up people to call their senators. 
to try and have them vote against Kavanaugh um, when they really they just don't have the votes unless they could somehow swing those couple of votes in the middle. You know, Susan Collins, maybe. But but Kavanaugh is obviously eminently qualified. And so the rhetoric just kind of descended into this nonsense about how he, um, you know, hates women and he's anti-science. The best example I could think of is um, Ted Cruz asked Kavanaugh during the hearings about the um, Priest for Life versus HHS case that had to do with the um, the HHS Obamacare contraception mandate. And uh, Kavanaugh was just kind of summarizing the priest for life, the plaintiff's position that emergency contraception um, can induce abortion. And immediately these pro-abortion groups just descended on it and tried to make it sound as if Brett Kavanaugh himself was saying that emergency contraception induces abortion when, in fact, he was stating the view of the plaintiff. So it was just this kind of, you know, lying, taking things out of context, absolute hysteria um, because people are panicked that Roe v. Wade could be overturned. So, you know, aside, bracket out the life issue, because I think you and I would both say that is probably the tip of the spear, has the greatest moral urgency behind it. What do you see as maybe one or two other of the most pressing public policy issues that you think conservatives and Christians should be giving their time to? Uh, I think a pretty obvious one that <laughs> that your listeners will be familiar with is religious liberty. Right. Um, that's a, a huge one on my mind, especially, um, you know, given the Masterpiece Cakes case mm-hmm. and what that precedent is going to do for cases that come up like that across the country. Was that, you know, obviously a big part of the debate after that Supreme Court decision came down was, is this actually a victory? And I think David and I both said on the podcast, and I tend to trust David on these things, um, I think that was a definitely a win. Sure. Uh, but the question will be how much of a win, how um, will that be applied to future cases? Obviously something to keep an eye on. And then aside from that, I think healthcare matters a lot. And especially, you know, I'm I'm a conservative. I'm not in favor of Obamacare, but I think we have to approach that issue and talk about that issue where it's not about, you know, kind of cutting costs for the government, mm-hmm. but more about, you know, a free market system, you know, a more open private healthcare system uh, will actually function better and enable more people to get better coverage, lower premium, things like this, you know, talk about it in a way that's about what's good for Americans, what's good for people, and less about, you know, we need a small government, which we do, but uh, I think it's more um, effective and it's more truthful to talk about why it's also good for Americans and good for the human person mm-hmm. to have a healthcare system that functions not in the way that Obamacare does. Right. Um, so that a, would be another big one. A common good human flourishing component of, of, of healthcare, I hear you for sure. Right. Well, that's going to wrap up our time for today because I know you have to get on to a very important meeting. So, Alexandra, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, to join this podcast and just want to express appreciation for your work and your voice and recommend that uh, listeners be sure to follow Alexandra on Twitter and uh, read everything that she writes. So, Alexandra, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you.